All right. I'm just going to go ahead and get started while people are going to be making their way back here. Um, we actually have a number of people who are on missions trips right now, meaning they're in Mexico. Um, you know, our intern pastor Nick is out in Dubai. We got some people, yeah, we got some people going everywhere, all these different places. So right now, would you and leaders who are out on agreement, Father, we just pray right now, Lord, for all of our students and leaders who are out on missions work right now. Holy Spirit, we pray that your hand would be upon them, Lord God. We pray for protection, Lord, against every attack, both spiritual and physical. We pray for safety for them. And Lord, we ask that you would take a hold of them, that you would anoint them for the work of ministry, Lord God. Father, you'd expand their faith, Lord, and that you would give them grace to bear fruit on these trips, Lord, and that you would give them grace to have deep change in their hearts, to get new perspective and new understanding, and that you would speak to them and they would hear you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Pray. Amen. Okay, I also want to pray for one more thing here. Um, right now, there is um, President Trump is trying to decide our next Supreme Court justice to replace um, Justice Kennedy. And would you just join with me in prayer right now? We also need to pray for this. Father, you said that we should pray for our leaders, Lord God. And Father, right now we pray for our president and for our Congress who will confirm whoever he picks. Lord, we pray for a wise decision. Lord, we leave it in your hands. Lord, we confess that we see in part and know in part. But, Lord, we ask that you would give him wisdom, Lord God. Lord, that, you, that a person of your choosing would be chosen, Lord. And, Father, we just lift it up to you and say, have your way in our government, Lord God. Lord, give them wisdom beyond their, their years. And we pray for the fear of the Lord to be firmly established in our government, Father. We thank you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Okay, thank you guys for praying with me. I want to encourage you to continue to keep our government in prayer. If you don't, um, if you don't know this, um, a Supreme Court seat is a big deal because it's a lifetime appointment. It's a lifetime appointment, so it's a very, very big deal. So I have been praying this past um, week um, for wisdom for our president. Look, I'm I'm happy with a lot of things that that President Trump has done, but I'm under no you know illusion that he is a man of the Bible or, or anything like this, right? I'm praying that God would give, him, would give him great wisdom, that there would be grace on his life to make wise decisions. By the way, I, I did that um, the same with President Obama. I pray for all of our presidents for grace, that they would have wisdom beyond their understanding to make wise decisions. I think that's a biblical prayer, amen? All right, okay, so today we are going to get into John chapter 4. John chapter 4, if you could open up your Bibles to John chapter 4. Um, last week, we talked about the call to greatness, that every single person living in this age has a call to be great in the age to come. And time, that's pretty normal. Because for us as people, we tend to fixate on this lifetime. That's pretty normal, right? That's pretty normal. We tend to fixate on this lifetime. We want to be great in this lifetime. But if you want to understand the Bible, the Bible puts all the emphasis on the next life. The Bible's all about living for eternity. The Bible says you're a fool if you live for this life and you don't live for the age to come. And so that's what we talked about last week. We talked about the parable of the, of the meanness, right? Or in other translations, the parable of the talents. And it's this idea that God has given to all of his servants resources. Now, this is your gifts. This is your time. 
This is, you know, your money. This is everything that he's given you. And what we see is that some multiplied what they were given, and then they were rewarded with position, with authority in the age to come. And some, well, one guy, right, he took the little that he was given, and he hid it in the ground, and he brought it back, right? And what it was is he said, well, I knew that you were a hard man. I knew that you were a hard man. And I want to say this. I wasn't able to share this last week because we ran out of time. But a lot, if we view God as a hard man, we will not be able to be faithful. Okay? If we view him as a hard man, I want to say that this, in a lot of ways, can be the, the stronghold for a lot of believers. That their view of God is they don't know God as a loving father. That they feel he's constantly disappointed in them. In them. And I just want to say that is not the God that we serve. God absolutely is hard. Don't let me, don't let me you know, um, misspeak here. He is very strict. But Paul says, he says, behold the kindness and the severity of God. God is both hard and kind. And we have to understand both of those things to know him rightly. Does that make sense? So the question is, how are you working to multiply what God has given you? How are we working in this age to multiply what God has given us? Because if we multiply it, then we'll be rewarded in the age to come. Faithful with little, faithful with much. Faithful with little, faithful with much. And some people have this mentality, well, you know, I'm, I'm just good with going to heaven. That's, I'm good with that. Well, the Bible talks about that too. It says, you wicked, lazy servant. Right? That's what it says. The one who's not, right? I, I want to apply what he's been given by the Lord. He just hides it away and says, no, I'm, I'm good. Right? I, I want to warn you about that kind of mentality. That kind of mentality is a mentality that is not faithful. Right? God's command, if we are his servants, we're called to multiply what he's given us. And that's why we are to be at work with the job that he has entrusted to us as believers. Does this make sense? This is important that we understand this, right? We're called, we have a job to do in this age, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Amen? So if you found John chapter 4, John chapter 4, and it says this, go down to verse 31, and it'll be on the board here. And Johnny, maybe take my, my volume down just a tad here, bro. It says, meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. What is that, by the way? He's going to say it, that it's his food to do the work of him who sent him. But I want to say this. I, I'm pretty sure Jesus was fasting, okay? Jesus was fasting here. So they said, Rabbi, eat something. And he said, no, no, no. Something's more important than me eating. Okay, and he's speaking about how he's fasting at this time. It says, then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Okay, 
Let's go, let's dive deep into this passage because this is such an important passage for the church to understand. God, open our eyes, Lord God, to see how the harvest is ripe, Lord. Give us spiritual vision and sight that we would not grow weary of doing good for we shall reap in due season, Lord. Father, we pray, let us not spiritually fall asleep, but let us be wide awake. Let us keep watch for the days are evil. Let us be about your business. Lord, we need you you to give us true vision in our lives, and we pray for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's the deal. Jesus says, open your eyes. The disciples are going, Jesus, aren't you hungry? And Jesus is like, essentially, you fools. (laughs) Don't you see that I'm doing something important, and you are tempting me? Does this make sense? Jesus is doing important ministry work here, but they don't get it. Right? They're like, he must be hungry. They thought they're trying to be nice. Right? But this is the mentality. If you don't understand the things of the Spirit, you're constantly stumbling people who are trying to run in God. Like, dude, why are you praying so much? You don't have to do that. Right? Why are you, you know, why are you not doing these things? You have the freedom to do that. And it's true. You do have freedom. I need to make a, a, a quick point here. It is not sin to do lots of different things. You can play video games all the time. It's not sin. Okay? You can watch Netflix. You can watch every episode on Netflix. It's not sin unless the Holy Spirit tells you to stop. Okay? It's not sin. But Paul says not everything is beneficial. Right? These things are permissible, but these things aren't necessarily beneficial. Jesus, it was not sin for Jesus to eat. He could have eaten right there. Right? But he understood that he had work to do, and he was bearing fruit in it. And his disciples come along. They're like, Jesus, you should eat. And he's like, no, I shouldn't. Does this make sense? Right? His mentality is so different from theirs. Their mentality is worldly. His mentality is open, meaning he sees what he's about. He knows his business. He's fully engaged in the calling that he has. But when you are worldly-minded, you look at spiritual people, and you're like, those people are weirdos, right? Why, is he, why ain't he eating? Well, I'll tell you why. Because we have important work to do. Brothers and sisters, if you want to be effective in kingdom work, fasting is part of the game. you got to learn to fast. Let me put it another way. There's a certain level of fruitfulness that I believe you cannot attain without real devotion to fasting in your life. That's all I'm going to say about fasting. This is not a fasting message, okay? But he says, don't you have a saying it's four, ton- four months until harvest? What's the idea there? We don't have to do anything right now. It's four months till harvest. That's when we have to work. Right now, we can just chill and take it easy. But Jesus says, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. Now, I don't think Jesus was speaking literally. I don't think he was saying, excuse me, look at those fields right there. They're ready to be harvested. Get on it, disciples. Right? It wasn't like they just immediately went out into the fields and just started working. Right? That wasn't what was happening. He was speaking spiritually. Right? You're speaking spiritually. There's a spiritual harvest that you need to see. And because you don't see it, you're not at work like I'm at work. It's because you don't see the great harvest that's there. You don't see that there's a need for your labor and your efforts. If you could see it, then you could be about the work that you've been called to do. But because you can't see it, you're wasting your time. 
He says this, even now the one who reaps draws a wage. What's he talking about? The one who reaps draws a wage. Again, he's talking spiritually. What's he saying? The one who is reaping is getting paid in heaven. See, there's this dynamic. When we're doing the works that the Father has called us to do, he pays us. I know that sounds weird, but it's true. When we do the work that he calls us to do, we receive a heavenly wage that's stored in our heavenly bank account that we get to cash in when we die. This is something that a lot of Christians don't understand because they're just focused on making it into heaven. Look, making it into heaven is just the beginning. That's just the beginning. There's an entire, there's so much of the Bible that's not about that, right? Like, I hate it when pastors, when preachers turn everything into a, a message about salvation, right? I love salvation. Get saved, okay? Go to heaven. But don't stop there. Don't be content with just a vision to get saved. There's so much more to the kingdom. I always say the salvation is just the door of the kingdom. That's just, you, it's, like, it's like you come to this amazing house and you just sit right down, right? You can't come to the front door, you just sit right there, you just stay and you just look at that door forever. No, I tell you, there's so much more to the kingdom and that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, look, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life. He's talking about the work of saving souls. So the one who's reaping is getting paid in eternity and they're, they're doing important work. People are getting saved over here. By the way, if you don't know the context of the story, he's saying this right after he speaks to the Samaritan woman and she just got saved. And she went into her whole village and told them all about Jesus, right? So he says, so the sower and the reaper may be glad, right? Even the one now who draws a wage, harvests a crop for eternal life, so the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. Okay, here's how this works. Most of us are not farmers, so sometimes these analogies are like, eh? Right, well, let me give you my farming wisdom, okay? This is how it works, I think, okay? You put a seed, all right, in the ground, that's sowing, okay? And then you have to wait, okay? And But you don't just wait. You have to water the seed and make sure it gets light and stuff like that, right? And then, you know, you ever do those experiments in, in kindergarten? You know, my kids, they, they, got the, they bring back this bean, right, that's like sprouted. Like, it's like that, right? This little seed that you put in starts to take root and it starts to grow. And when it reaches maturity, then it's time to reap. And what happens? You come back and you cut it down and you get to eat your potato or whatever it is that you planted, okay? Sowing and reaping. Now, understand this. Jesus is not talking about physical sowing and reaping, okay? This is spiritual. He's talking about the spiritual dynamics of sowing and reaping. How one person sows and another person reaps. And what's he talking about? He's saying, look, you disciples, I have sent you, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. This is really important that we understand this dynamic. What's he talking about? Jesus sends forth his 70 disciples, and they go out to proclaim the news of the kingdom. They heal the sick. They cast out demons. They come back, and they're like, Jesus, even the demons obey us in your name. Right? What's happening? They're reaping great fruit for the kingdom. They're like, I'm the man. Right? People are getting saved. Lives are being transformed this is glorious. This is what it's about. And Jesus is like, I sent you to reap where others have sown. Who are the others that sowed there? 
Who did the work of sowing? Well, I'll tell you, it's all those people that didn't reap. <laughs> it's the ones like Anna. If you read at the beginning of the gospel story, it says that there's this woman named Anna, and she's praying in the temple all day long, right, for the vast majority of her life. She's praying. It's ones like the prophets who spoke bold words, and they were not listened to in their generation, right? None of the prophets, for the most part, were popular in their generation. They were persecuted in their generation, and then later on they became popular. Does that make sense? That's how it tends to work. Prophets tend to not be popular people. You're like, dude, I don't want to listen to that guy yelling at me again. Right? It's only when their words come true that in the next generation they go, that guy was a prophet. Jeremiah, that was the prophet. You know, the problem with Jeremiah is that Jeremiah was preaching repentance to Israel for 40 years. I always say this. I bet the first day Jeremiah preached, people were freaking out, right? Repent or God will send judgment. And people are like, oh my gosh, this is scary, right? And the next day he's preaching, repent or God will send judgment. And then after a week of hearing that, I bet a lot of them were like, didn't happen, dude. Right? Here we are. Seven days later, no judgment. Little do they understand the timetable of God, right? Jeremiah was sent to preach repentance for 40 years. He preaches repentance. And the issue, by the way, is not that people didn't want to listen to God. The issue is that there were all these other prophets saying, no, no, you're good. Right? No, God says everything is fine. God says he loves you just the way you are. Right? And then Jeremiah is like, no, he says repent or you're going to get judged. And you're sitting there like, I don't know which is true, but I like listening to this guy a lot more than this guy. Right? And then judgment happens, and then the next generation was like, Jeremiah, that guy, he was a real prophet, that one. Right? Guess what? That's almost exactly the times that we're living in right now. It's almost exactly the same. The point is this, that some sow, and they don't see the fruit of their labor. And others reap, and they receive the great reward. But guess what? It wasn't all their work that was doing it. In the age to come... They'll be rewarded for the faith that their actions took. What's my point here today? Well, I'm about to give you some serious spiritual insight, but I tell you, this message is not going to be easy for you today because I'm just going no holds barred, okay? Is that okay? I like to do that every now and again, just give it to you straight. And some of y'all are going to be like, dude, you're weird. I'm like, that's cool, man. I am weird. Praise him. But I'll say this. Is it, is it, is it, taste of what I'm going to give you. We, brothers and sisters, are in a season of sowing. We're sowing right now. If you go out and start preaching about Jesus at Cal State Fullerton, you're going to get a lot of people going like, this is a weird guy right here, right? There ain't going to be much fruit. Does that make sense? Why? Because it's a season of sowing. You have to sow into the hard soil, right? You have to sow so that there can be a time of reaping. And you get confused because sometimes you try to go out to reap because you think that's what it's supposed to look like. And it doesn't really go so well. And then you go, man, Jesus sucks. <laughs> right? This sucks. God isn't really in this. No, you're too immature to realize what he's actually telling you to do. Make sense? We all have to obey the Holy Spirit, but it helps to know the seasons that we're in. Okay, so here's the question. What is God doing right now? We have to have eyes to see spiritually what God is doing in the nations right now. Meaning, here is the motto for Burning Tree Ministry. It is campus revival for global harvest. 
campus revival for Global Harvest. But what we're doing takes place in a larger context of what God is doing in the nations. We have to understand what God is doing in the nations to see the part that we're supposed to play. Make sense? So what is God doing in the nations? Well, Jesus said this before he left and ascended to the Father. He said in Matthew 28, chapter 18, he gives a great commission to his disciples. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So this is the command. Go out and make disciples of all nations. How many of you guys know that's exactly what has been happening for the past 2,000 years? For the past 2,000 years, the disciples of Jesus have been going and discipling the nations. Here's what you need to understand. For the most part, there has been a westward movement of the kingdom of God. There's been a westward stopped them, gave them a dream, wanted to go east into Asia, but the Holy Spirit stopped him, gave him a dream of people in Macedonia crying out, and he knew it was from the Lord. So he turned west, and he started evangelizing the west. And since then, we've seen Christianity move westward across the globe, all throughout Asia, then it, or excuse me, all throughout Europe, right, hit Europe, and then the center of Christianity moved to America. Okay, America has been the center of Christianity for the past X amount of years. I want to say like a couple hundred years now. But it's moving right now into Asia. And that's why we see the most dynamic move of God right now in Asia, specifically China, India. All these types of countries are exploding with the gospel. They're going crazy over there. I always tell people, you should be begging God to send you to Asia. That's what I tend to think. Okay. But we are seeing him move in other, other places. We just had an incredible revival in South America. Incredible moves of, of the Spirit. Millions and millions of people coming to know the Lord in a fresh way. The Pentecostal charismatic movement exploded all throughout Latin America. And now we've got something like 250 million or something down there. It's, it's an incredible move of God. And a lot of that happened in the latter half of the 20th century. But here's the point. God is moving. Just because he ain't doing crazy things in your life, you're like, where are you, God? Asia. That's, that, I, I, I don't want to say this in a wrong way because the reality is God is near us and, and at work here. But you have to understand there's a real spiritual forces. Like this is not just about you and Jesus. That's why I don't like the whole it's just all about me and Jesus. No, it's not. Okay? It's about you and Jesus and billions of angels and demons and people. Okay? There's all this stuff going on, and if you don't have eyes to see it, then you completely miss out on what God's doing in your generation. Can you imagine? Jesus comes to earth, and he ministers for three years. And the vast majority of people completely miss it. They have no idea. You know who didn't miss it? The wise men who had been trained to look for the sign of his coming. They understood they were ready for the time. And when they saw the star, they went to find him who was born king of the Jews. Am I making sense? So you tend to be very few who have the wisdom to know what God is doing in a generation. And guess what? When you know what God is doing, you get involved with what God is doing. You don't go, God, bless what I'm doing. Your paradigm, that's how you miss him. Am I making sense? 
You miss God when, you, when your paradigm is God. Whatever it is that I want to do, please bless me. Right? No, you miss what God's doing in a generation. It's, that's why the whole thing is surrender. Why you lay your life down. Then you open yourself up to be influenced by the Spirit of God so he can start to move you into what he's doing in the nations. When we're connected with his purpose, then his grace is upon our life. Why? Because he's using us for what he's already doing. Does this make sense? So for the past 2,000 years, there's been a westward move of the Spirit of God. Look, if you want to try and give it a picture, I think it looks something like this. I think if we could see into the Spirit, there would be angelic armies. And the front line of battle right now is in different parts of Asia. That's probably where the fighting is the hottest, okay? Now, I know that that's going to bring up a whole lot of questions about how do angels fight? Do they die? I don't know, to be honest. I've thought about it myself. I can speculate for a while. I don't know, but what we see clearly is that there is some real spiritual fighting in the Bible. Okay? There are many passages in the Bible that talk about this dynamic, but this is an important dynamic to understand. So to bring this in a little bit more locally, there was an incredible move of God up to the year 2000. Right before the year 2000, missions was exploding all over the world. People got saved in an incredible way up until about the year 2000. And then what happened is missions efforts just started. Funding for missions went down. Missionaries started to come home. Mission boards started to close. It looked like we were going to be able to evangelize the entire earth if we stayed at the pace that we were at in like 1995, okay, in our generation. But then missions started to close down. So here's what we need to understand. Prophetic voices have said this, that they saw two waves of the Spirit. One was that one prior to 2000 in the 90s. There was an incredible wave of the Spirit. Then what they saw was they saw a time of great lull, and then they saw the greatest revival in the history of the world. That's the one that I'm living for, okay? That's the one that I'm excited about. I think we're in the years prior to the greatest move of God in the history of the world. And I get excited about that. How can you tell? Well, because I say this all the time, but we are in right now the greatest prayer movement in the history of the world. Great moves of God are always preceded by great prayer movements. If you have never studied revivals, what are you doing? Let me lovingly rebuke you, okay? Study revival. If you don't have a, a, a vision or a paradigm for revival, you, how are you going to understand the things of God? You can't understand the things of God unless you understand the pattern of revival. We've had several revivals here in America, and that's why it's so ridiculous when people are always like, oh yeah, Christianity is dead, it's dying, it's a dying thing. I'm like, you moron. Just read a history book or something. Okay, that's exactly what people were saying in like the 1700s, right? Like early 1700s, oh yeah, Christianity is dying, it's all about like this new rationalistic thinking and all this kind of stuff. And then what happens? Great awakening. And then guess what? By the end of that century, end of the 18th century, people were saying the same thing. Like all this immorality in America, people were like, is, is the church dead? All these articles coming out. And then what happens? Second Great Awakening, right? So if you don't have a paradigm for revival, then all you have is your, your minuscule view of what's happened in your lifetime. And guess what? You're not much of an expert if all you know is what's happened in your lifetime. I'll say this. I have seen... God, I've seen America turn away from God at a greater rate in these past, like, 20 years than I think I've ever seen historically. And I've actually studied some of the history of this kind of stuff. Now, that would freak me out 
if I didn't have confidence that we were getting ready for an incredible revival. If I didn't have that confidence, I'd be like, what am I doing as a pastor, right? I'd be freaking out. But it's having, understanding the ways of God, what it does is it gives us peace so that we do not grow weary of doing good, for we shall reap in due season if we do not lose heart, right? I'm not afraid. I'm praying all the time. I'm doing my part. I'm showing into the coming move of God, right? And I'm going to receive a reward on that day for the part that I played. Does this make sense? The hard part is having vision when it's hard to see. That's the hard part. But what we can expect is this, that we are probably going to have a great wave of revival to finish evangelism in the 1040 window in the Middle East. The Middle East right now is the, the last stronghold of the enemy. There's no breakthrough in the Middle East right now, right? It's very hard to the gospel. In fact, what we've seen is that Christians have been persecuted and kicked out of the Middle East. If you've been following news stories for the past five years, ISIS essentially went on a mad run persecuting every Christian right throughout Iraq and Syria. And um, it's largely been eradicated in those areas. But what we're going to see is we're going to see a great move of the Spirit to raise up new wine missionaries that are going to be thrown right into the Middle East. And I tell you, that first wave is probably going to be martyred, a lot of them. That's how this tends to work, right? When you're breaking in new ground, it's the blood of the martyrs that breaks open the spiritual atmosphere in those places. I told you it was going to be kind of weird, okay? But we have to understand how these things work. How did the gospel break into the Roman Empire? A wave of martyrdom. That's how. How do you break open ground? A wave of martyrdom, okay? That's why you should not go to the Middle East unless the Lord is telling you to go, okay? If the Lord tells you to go, praise God either to protect you or you get the martyr's crown, okay? But we have to be aware of what's happening here. There's an entire window right now. The last bastion of, of demonic stronghold needs to be broken in the Middle East, and there is a move of God coming that I believe is going to finish it. There's lots of testimonies coming out of China that the underground church in China has been praying and raising up missionaries knowing that they, they must go into the Middle East, Right? There's a call on their lives to invade that area. And that's why most of the, of the missionary work that's being done right now in the Middle East, a lot of it is to pray over the area. It's to break, up fallow, to, to break up the hard ground in prayer first. A lot of people are going to the Middle East um, just to worship and pray right, and to intercede for the nations because the time of reaping has not come yet. Making sense? The sowing has to come first before the time of reaping. Okay, does that give us something of a generalized picture of what the Spirit of God is doing in the world? It should. Now, we're here in Southern California, in America. So if we understand what our role is, we have to know what is God doing in America, right? Because America has largely been the center of Christianity throughout the world. What do I mean? I mean most missionaries going out to the nations are coming out of America, there's been this incredible center of faith in our nation that has enabled missionaries to go all throughout the world. And the question is, is our time coming to a close? And I want to prophetically declare, I do not think that that is the case. I think that there's another generation of revival coming to America. But here's what you have to understand. Every generation has to fight for a revival. Every generation has to fight for revival. Let me put it to you another way. Why the heck is half the Bible about Israel? Why is half the Bible? Most people don't understand, so they just don't read those parts. Like, oh, that part doesn't apply to us anymore. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Israel is the prototype nation. It goes first so that we can learn from its example. What do we see in Israel? 
Israel starts with a man who's faithful. God sees the faith of Abraham and says, I will make a great nation out of you. He blesses his descendants. He gives them his law through Moses, and he selects them for a special purpose. And then what happens? He warns them. He warns them, be very careful to keep these commands. Because this is what will happen. I'm going to bring you into a land that's prosperous, that's flowing in milk and honey. And when you have all of this wealth, you're going to forget about the Lord. And you're going to forget about my commands. He warns them in advance. And that's exactly what happens when Israel becomes greatly prosperous under the reign of Solomon. It's most prosperous period. What starts to happen? Idolatry starts to break out in the nation in a great way. God has to split the kingdom, and then what happens is you have this entire history where Israel is battling for faithfulness, right? God's sending prophets, saying, turn and repent. Repent of this sin. This is getting a stronghold in the nation. This idol is getting strong. Break it down, all this kind of stuff. What's happening? The the nation is warring for allegiance to Yahweh, to God. And a lot of times we just have the mentality, oh, they're just getting worse and worse and worse and worse, but that's no, that's not how it was. No, no, no. There would be a spiritual attack of idolatry. God would send a prophet to target it, and the prophet would have certain degrees of success. There would be certain degrees of repentance in the nation, and what that would do is that would prolong the period of blessing, and we see times of national revival in Israel. If you're familiar with the reigns of Hezekiah and Josiah, right? If you're familiar with the the ministries of Elisha, right? When Elijah destroys the prophets of Baal, these are times of national revival in the nation. We see these times, and it prolongs the period of blessing. Brothers and sisters, what's my point? America is in the same place. We're in the same place. We have to battle for our national righteousness. Why? Because American blessing right now is at the center of world peace. If American power collapses, war will almost certainly break out in the nations. Okay? This is not Dennis's opinion. This is historical fact. What we have right now is America is so much stronger than every nation that no nation would dare go to war with us. But if American power starts to decrease and there starts to become parity between our nation and, say, China, well, then it's a breeding ground for war. Am I making sense? We need to understand how this works. There was a time where England was the undisputed power in the world, right? But when English power started to diminish and German power started to ascend, what do you have? You had, a peer, you had a place that was ripe for war. Okay? We have to understand how these things work. Not only so, but American power rests on its righteousness. Okay, this is going to be the most controversial point, so I have to hit this. Because it is a counter-narrative that's out there that America is strong because it oppressed others and it stole their resources and it used slaves and all that kind of stuff. Let me tell you, that is a demonic lie. That is a demonic lie, and it's being preached right now through our universities, which I'll get to in a second. America is not blessed because it's the most oppressive. That's socialism, okay? That's how socialism works. It says rich people are rich because they oppress the poor. The problem is there's so many many Bible verses that say that's not how it works. Say that you reap what you sow. If you sow sin, then you're going to reap curses from it. Does this make sense? American power is largely based on its righteousness. This is what Alexei de Tocqueville said when he came and investigated America. He said America is great because America is good. There's a moral fiber. There's a reason why America has been the most Christian nation on the planet. That's where the blessings come from. Okay? 
But you have to understand, there is a war of ideas in our nation right now. There is a socialist spirit that's trying to break down and dishonor our past and slander our past and point out every area of sinfulness right? Every area of sin. Oh, look, here's slavery. Look how evil we were. Oh, shoot, look, here's what we did to the Native Americans. Look how evil we were. Now, does that, dis- does that, what's the word I'm looking for? Dismiss? Sure. Does that dismiss any of those evils, real evils that were done? No. The thing is that there's evil going on all over the world in many nations. Does this make sense? If you focus just on the terrible things that America has done, yeah, you'll have a lot to talk about. But I tell you, there's so much good that America has done. And that's what almost never gets discussed in universities anymore, right? That's the part that's turned off. Why? Because there's an agenda. There's a spirit preaching right now through the universities, okay? The principle that I'm talking about is biblical, this idea that God is the one who raises up kingdoms and tears them down. Daniel chapter 2 talks explicitly about this, that he's the one who raises up kingdoms and tears them down. Ezekiel chapter 14 talks about if a nation is unfaithful and I send the sword against it. This is idea that God raises up other nations to invade countries as a judgment upon them. This is the part where you're not going to get this stuff in university, right? This is the spiritual component that you don't understand if you're not discipled in the scriptures, No, it's God who superintends the affairs of nations. And it's God who raises up righteous nations. Why? For the blessed so the whole world can be blessed. And he tears them down when they fall into moral depravity. Am I making sense? And this is something that our founding fathers, that they knew. I have this quote from Washington. This is from George Washington's farewell address. Okay? This is a little complicated, so I'm going to probably have to explain it because they wrote, they, they actually were smart back then. They used hard words. Okay. It says this, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim to tribute to, of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and to cherish them. He's talking about religion and morality. Okay, this is the subject, and he's describing why they're so important. Let it simply be asked, where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths, which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice? He's saying if you lose your religious value for life, the courts are going to abandon this value also. And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. And he's saying, look, and this idea that you can have morality without religion, he says, that's, that's stupid. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason, experience, both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. What's he saying? He's saying that those who think that you can have strong morality without religion, they don't, they don't know what they're talking about. That's what George Washington is saying. He's saying that religion and morality are inseparable and that they are the primary support of our political power. This makes sense? This is the founding principles of our nation that we understood this and that's why it was preached. In fact, there's another quote by George Washington. It says this, It is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor. Brothers and sisters, there is a 
Christian religious value that is at the center of American prosperity. And that's the battle for our nation. Do you understand it was the same way in Israel? Israel, the prophets were saying, the Lord is the one who has given you these great blessings. He's the one who saved you from the, from the Egyptians. He's the one that's blessed you. And if you do what is right in his sight, then you'll be blessed. And other people are like, really? This one God, are you sure? Aren't there lots of gods? Might there be just one other God, right? And people are like, maybe. We read the Old Testament and it's, it's very easy for Christians to just judge them, right? Like, oh, these idiots, right? These morons. Why aren't they just listening to God? Except that judgment comes right back on you. Because are you being a prophet to our nation? Are you standing in the face of adversity to say that this is God's moral law and we are all obligated to obey it? See, there's this idea that's become popular in our culture today, right? Everyone should be free to do whatever they want. The problem is, I don't know how you can be a Christian and believe that. Because the, the, the whole thing's about how God's going to judge the nations, right? He's going to judge everybody according to his standard. He's not going to go, well, you did pretty good for what you thought was right. No. The God of, of all nations, of all men, now has commanded all men everywhere to repent. That's what Paul preaches in the book of Acts. He said in times past, he let these nations go their own way. But now, God commands all men everywhere to repent. What's God's expectation? His expectation is that America lives up to his moral law. That America obeys his commandments. And if America does not, then America will lose many of its blessings that God has given to us. Am I making sense? Brothers and sisters, we have to see it from this. You have to realize that if you have been trained in American universities, you have been brainwashed, right, in secular humanism and in socialism. This is why I, this is why I pray so much for the universities, right? Why? Because they're brainwashing our kids. Do you realize that in the 60s, you had to pray in school? You started every school day with, Almighty God, we beseech your blessing on our nation. That seems like an eternity ago, doesn't it? That seems like a long, long time ago. But I tell you, you're the generation that has been discipled under the secular mentality that our church, that our schools should be secular rather than Christian. And I get thrown this question all the time. What about the, the separation of church and state? Yeah, Pastor Dennis, what, shouldn't you, you know, be about the separation of church and state? I'm like, yes, as originally intended, but the way you're using the phrase is to say that our schools should be secular. That is not what the founding fathers meant by that phrase, right? No, they, it, they wrote it into our founding documents. We hold these truths to be self-evident that we have been endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. They're not saying the government should be secular. They're saying the government should be Christian but we should give freedom to everyone, right? We're not going to send people to jail. It's illegal to send people to jail for not being Christian. Does this make sense? And now we have all of these Christians who are being discipled in a secular mentality from a young age, and I talk about basic biblical truths, and they're like, wait, this doesn't feel right, right? Seems like you're trying to force your morality on everybody. Welcome to the game. What do you think this book is about? The whole book is about forcing God's morality on everybody. The whole point is that I made you, 
And if you obey my commands, then it'll go well with you. You'll be blessed. And if you don't obey my commands, then you'll be cursed and it will not go well with you. That's what the whole thing's about. Like, if you don't understand that that's what it's about, how the heck are you going to be the light of the world? You can't be the light of the world. You're darkness, just like the world is darkness. That's why we have a culture right now where there's so few voices who are willing to speak truth. We have all these Christians. you understand that 20% of America right now, if I understand the, the statistics correctly, 20% of the nation goes to church somewhat regularly? How many Christians in America? is an incredible number that is so that we have so many christians in america but what's the problem we have christians who go to church and have no idea how to spiritually fight they have no clue they're just trying to fight to keep their own faith let alone fight demonic strongholds in the nation they're like please don't beat me up demonic strongholds (laughs) how does that How does that compute with a scripture that says you are more than conquerors through Christ? How can that compute? No, the truth is this, that we have so many Christians who are content to stay in immaturity throughout their spiritual lives. Who are content to say, oh, as long as I believe in God, go to church, go to heaven, I'm good. No, you're not good. No, because then you forfeited the great calling on your life. No, you are called to be the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're to preserve it from judgment. But if the salt loses its saltiness, then it's only fit to be trampled underneath the feet of the conquerors. That's the idea, right? Brothers and sisters, what are we doing in America? We're supposed to be discipling this nation in righteousness, teaching it to obey all the commands of Jesus. That's our job. That's what we're supposed to do because if we do that well, then America will be blessed. Then our nation will be greatly blessed. But if we don't do that well then our nation will be cursed. Can I tell you one way that we have not done that well? In the last generation, our nation started to believe en masse that sex outside of marriage was totally fine. Totally fine. Now our generation has bought this lie completely. Can I tell you what's happened? 40% of babies born in our nation are born without two parents in in the home. That's what's happened to our nation. Excuse me, I I butchered that stat. It's 40% of babies are born to unwed mothers, okay? Not all of them don't have a father in the house. He eventually comes as a boyfriend, or they eventually get married later. But the point is this. So many kids are growing up without a mother or father. And I tell you, it's a direct fruit of this belief that we can have sex outside of marriage without consequences. This is why I get angry when we're talking about social policy, public policy, like trying to fix poverty, I'll tell you what's the, what the root issue with poverty is. The root issue with poverty is fatherlessness. That's the problem. If When children grow up without a father in the house, they're far more likely to fail out of school. They're far more likely to have drug issues. They're far more likely to go to jail. All the statistics show this. And yet when you talk about, well, maybe there's a moral component to this. People are like, oh, you're trying to impose your religion on me. No! I'm trying to save the nation. I'm not telling you because I care so much about what you do. I'm telling you because if you propagate this lie, oh, yeah, I can sleep with whoever I want. We just have fun. We use protection. It's all good. No, you're contributing, right? You're part of the problem. 
We have so many children growing up in our nation who feel unwanted and undesired. Why? Because their parents refuse to bow down to God's wisdom. That's why. And who are the ones who are supposed to be preaching this? Get your finger pointed at yourself. Man, come on, yeah, come on, come on, fingers. You, you, me! You! Me! We're the ones who are supposed to be preaching this. Except I never see this kind of stuff on Facebook. I see a lot of stuff about other stuff. But I see very few people who have the moral courage to fight for righteousness. And hear me. I'm not saying that you should just spout off on stuff that you don't firmly believe in. I'm saying you should get some moral courage, right? You should get some conviction of right or wrong so that you can be a voice for righteousness in the nation. Why? Because America must have a third great awakening. We must have a third great awakening. Hear me. I'm not just talking about lots of people getting saved, although that is one aspect of a revival that I'm really into. I'm after lots of people getting saved. But here's what we must have. We must have lots of people getting saved, meaning pledging their allegiance to Jesus and then bringing about righteousness in the culture. We must have mass repentance where we repent of many of the sin issues that have become popular in our parents' generation. We must repent. Why? So that our nation can continue to be blessed. And the question is, well, what if we don't? Well, I'll tell you what Scripture says, okay? This is not Dennis speaking. I'll tell you what Scripture says. We will come under judgment. We will come under judgment. And I say this lovingly, but we must understand that this is true. And the problem is this. We have been the most blessed people in the history of the world since the 1950s. That's almost 70 years of nonstop blessing. So it's hard to imagine that something terrible could befall us. But I'll tell you this. If you can't, if you can't picture that, you need to read a history book. Okay, read a history book because the history of the world is all about terrible things happening to peoples. Okay, this idea that we have somehow progressed or our civilization has grown beyond. This is just such utter foolishness. No, you don't understand. We have the capability to destroy all life on the planet now. Right. A world war. You understand President Trump has the power to launch nuclear missiles. That scares the heck out of me. That should scare you. This guy can't control his Twitter. Look, I love him in a lot of ways, but self-restraint is not one of his strengths. Okay? I'm thankful for him. I honor him. But I, I have a fear that things could go bad quickly, and I think that that's supported biblically. Am I making sense? I think that there should be a sobriety that we understand that things can get very bad, and that's why we should have an urgency that it's important that we seek righteousness in the nation. Now, getting back to the good news. That's the potentially bad news. The good news is that we're part of the greatest prayer movement in history. Oh, thank God. What would we do if we didn't have a crazy prayer movement going on right now? I don't know. Oh, we'd be in so much trouble, right? Rick Joyner points out in various cities of America, in the past 10 years, we've had dozens of gatherings in various cities of America, mass fasting and repentance on behalf of the nation, right? Rick Joyner points out that if this had happened in biblical times, they would have written about it in scripture, right? Like these entire cities coming together, hundreds of thousands of people to repent and to fast and beseech the blessing of the Lord. 
thank God for Lou Engel. Not just him, it's, it's, it's what God's doing through him and through lots of other people who are supporting what he's doing. But you understand, this is what God's doing in the nation. So when we talk about going to the call Azusa Street, I'm not saying, hey, you should go so you can be blessed. No! You should go because we need massive repentance in the nation. And if we can't even get you to repent, how the heck are we going to get everybody else to repent? That's why we're to be about this, this idea that our Christianity is just trying to come to church every week. I hate it. I hate that weak vision of Christianity. No, look, it starts there. Look, if, if, it's, if, if it's hard for you to come to church every Sunday, thank God that you do. Okay? I get it. That's real faith for many people. And if that's you, praise God that you came here today. But I want to say, please don't be content with having a Christianity that just comes on Sundays, but never engages in what God is doing in the nation. That's never able to see it or feel it and to be part of it in a great way. No, I call our ministry to labor in the place of prayer because this is the season for sowing. Oh, let us sow in the seeds of the coming revival. I want to be part of it. It may not happen in my generation. I'm fairly certain it will, but you never know. The timing is tough. But even if I never see it, I know I'm going to reap a great reward from my king for sowing in prayer into this, for not growing weary, for saying, God, I was praying, Lord God. I was praying when the nation was struggling. I was saying, God, I want you to move the nation. I was interceding for the nation. Now hear me. There's another aspect to this. This is what God's doing in America. But now you're a student at a university in America. What a blessed position you have. Holy cow, we're going late. Let me finish. I know it's hot, but you understand, this is, this is so important that we get this. Brothers and sisters, if you are at university in America, you are on the front lines of the battle for America's heart. I tell you this, but you have to understand secular humanistic philosophy and socialism. If you don't understand the spirit of socialism, how the heck are you going to fight against the stronghold in your, in your university? Because that's what's being preached nonstop. This multicultural idea, this idea that if you say Islam is evil, you're a bigot. No. I'm not multicultural. I believe some cultures are superior to other cultures. I don't know how you can be a Christian and not believe that. The truth is that everyone believes that. The only difference is that those who are liberals, who are, who are secular humanists, they think their culture is superior. This idea that we're all essentially the same, every religion is essentially the same. You know why they think that? Because they don't think any of the religions are true. That's why they think that. They think they're all garbage. So yeah, you can worship Jesus or Muhammad or whomever because those, they don't actually exist, right? They're not real deities. So they're like, yeah, if it makes you happy, do it, right? That's garbage. Look, either Jesus is God or he's a big phony. And I'm not buying into the lie that he's a phony because I've experienced him in my life. And I'm not buying into the lie that he's a phony because I've actually read the history of the world. I've actually seen how the gospel of the kingdom has transformed life on earth as we know it. I say this all the time, but we are children of that revival, meaning the reason you're as rich as you are and as blessed that you can eat a million kinds of food, that you can do all this kind of stuff, is because the gospel took a hold of your culture and you became blessed through it. 
So this idea that I would betray the one who has saved me by saying, oh, it's not really important that you believe in Jesus. No, it's the most important thing in the history of the world, that you would believe in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you're in the university, you have a privileged place on the front lines of battle. What am I saying? I'm saying it's your job to contend for revival in your university. I think that we're at a stage where there could be real transition in the university system. Now, hear me. This is the part where I'm just giving a little bit of speculation, okay? I think it's likely that our university system is going to radically change in this next generation. Because what we're doing right now is we're building up an incredible bubble of debt. I don't know if you realize this, right? I don't have time to go into this. I'll just say this. If you get real wisdom, biblical wisdom, and you start to contend for you universities, you have the greatest chance of really entering into your destiny as a child of God, into the calling that he has for your life. If you fail the battle, right, for your own spirit as a student, I'll tell you then you're going to be discipled and influenced by the university system, and they're going to make you totally worldly. You're going to have no ability to comprehend most of Scripture. You're going to leave most of it behind. You're going to like a couple of Scriptures that talk about being a more loving person, and that's it, right? You have to cut out entire sections of the Bible that talk about judgment and all the rest, right? I tell you, brothers and sisters, fight for your faith. Fight for your faith. Don't be passive. You're in a spiritual war. Open your eyes. The fields are ripe for harvest. Open your eyes. The fields are ripe for harvest. We should have a heart to say, God, we must finish the Great Commission. And if I'm not called to go, then I'm going to support those who do sacrificially with my finances and my prayer. But, Lord, I'm going to say, if you want me to go, then that's what this is about, isn't it? It's about surrendering our lives to say, Jesus, I'll go wherever you go. Right now, worship team, come on up. I feel so provoked in my spirit right now. I feel so provoked in my spirit, brothers and sisters. Stand up. I know this is a hard message today. And I want to go ahead and release you. If, if you're all done, you're like, I hate being here right now. I just need to get out of here. You have my blessing to leave. Okay? But there's something in my spirit right now. We cannot, we cannot live for a Christianity that just makes us a little bit happier. That has to die here in this room. I'm inviting you to kill that vision of Christianity in your life. The one where it's just like, God... I'll do my best to, to serve you, but I'm not going full, I'm not going fully into your kingdom purpose, right? That's the vision of Christianity that must die. I want to call you as warriors for your universities and for the nation. This is what this is about, brothers and sisters. This is what this is about. We are in a life and death struggle, not only for our own spiritual lives, but for the life of the nation. Hear me. was a nation. It used to be the most Christian nation in the world, but it turned against the gospel, and it started to embrace a multicultural gospel where it said all religions are the same. And that nation caused unprecedented devastation. I'm talking about Germany. Germany was the center of Christianity 
for at least 100 years, probably longer than that, in the world. So much of our theology comes out of Germany. There were so many missions that was born out of Germany. The modern Protestant missions movement was born out of Germany. It was the most Christian nation in the world, but they lost this battle that we're in right now. And the problem is we need Christians to wake up and to open up their eyes and to say this, my life is no longer my own. I must be about my father's business. My goal in college is not to get good grades. Please don't mishear me. Get good grades, okay? But it's to say, God, I must be trained in righteousness. I must be trained for what you're doing in the nations. I must be used in by your spirit to turn the nation back to righteousness or God send me elsewhere. Look, if you're not called to do that in America, then you're called somewhere else. That's fine. Go be a missionary. God bless you. We'll support you. But if you're going to be here in America, this is what I'm saying. Your life is not your own. You need to start fighting in this battle. You need to start fighting in this battle. Sorry, hold on. Turn off the music right now. I feel really provoked in my spirit here. We have to say no. There's a, there's a form where we're just going, like we're just going to do the same things over and over again. No, I'm saying this. You must become a Bible expert. You must get serious about it. You can't just, you can't like this idea that, oh, I don't need to radically change my life. And I can do this. No, you can't. You have to radically change your life. When I say get in a small group, hear me, I'm lovingly rebuking you. But if you're not in a small group at this point, and you've been coming out to our our ministry for like months, what are you doing? What are you doing? You want me to make one for you. No. I'm saying you need to grow up. Grow up. If you've been coming out to our ministry, if you've made decisions, we've done so many altar calls where people have given their lives to the Lord. If you've been to any one of those altar calls, why aren't you in a small group yet if you're not? In my spirit, I was begging that God would impress your heart to come out this summer. We did a summer internship just because I wanted to pour in to some of you. Our attendance was abysmal. We canceled it after a month, eight meetings. I showed up because I wanted to pour into people. And there was like, some days there was no one there. Brothers and sisters, what are we doing here? Hear me, this is my heart. I don't want a church where people leave happy every week. I want a church that's bearing great fruit. This has been the prayer of my heart for this past year. God, we must bear great fruit. If you're going to be part of our ministry, here's what I'm going to say. You must throw your life into the, into the mission that we've been called to do. Guys, I, I, I'm not, I don't judge 
our ministry by its size. I, I judge it way more by the size of our prayer meetings. I want to lovingly call us this year to be serious about our faith. Right now, I'm going to repeat it. If you're all done, you're just like, I need to get out of here. God bless you. Go ahead. But if you're here and you're saying, God, I need you to take me to a whole new level of faith and maturity, then right now, would you just get on your knees right now before the Lord? Because we're going to cry out. We're going to cry out for personal revival and for an outpouring of His Spirit upon us. And please hear me. I understand not everybody in this room can, can be you know, in a place where you want this. And hear me, I'm not mad at you. You can go. God bless you. Okay. But right now, we need God to raise up warriors. That's what I'm about. God, raise up warriors in this house, God. Don't let us stay in a position of immaturity. It's time to multiply our fruitfulness. This is the year. Right now, I want to encourage us. We're going to cry out Jesus three times. And we're going to cry out for God to bring personal revival to our hearts and to call us into the mission of the nations. Right now, let's cry out Jesus. Jesus! Jesus!